You're listening to Path of Love with David Youngren. To learn more about us, visit pathoflovecenter.com. Welcome to the Path of Love. I am Marcus Noel, and we're with David Youngren talking about his book, Awakening to I Am Love. Uh, we're on chapter 11, so for those who are following along, please break out your books and let's talk to David about when faith reveals who you are. How are you doing today, David? I am as well as I was last week. <laughs> <laughs> that is good, I, I, I assume, right? <laughs> I think, I, I think you should, that assumption is correct. Obviously, if for those who are interested in soccer or football, the, oh, mm-hmm. that has been over now. And, and, but it was a thrilling few weeks, I would suggest, in, uh, was here in both in South America and, and what do they call it, Copa mm-hmm. America. And then, of course, for the European uh, Championship, which I follow very intently. And Italy won, correct? Yeah, Italy won. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I saw that. That was very, very um, exciting. It was, As, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, it was. It was. <laughs> so let's talk about when faith reveals who you are. Uh, in this chapter, at the very beginning of the chapter, for the people who are reading, I, I was speaking to David offline. And I said, I encourage the, the, the people to see the chapter through and really read um, from the very beginning to the end. So you started out with the challenge is faith is another word that comes loaded with troubling assumptions and misconceptions. I saw that and I was like, hmm, that goes against a lot of the things that I've I've heard. But can you explain a little bit about that? Essentially, as we have been going through this journey together throughout this book, what I have tried to present are two different realities, two different perceptions, two ways of seeing things. One is through what we call the egoic mind. Another word for that we have also used for those who come from the Christian background we use the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Those involved in, in more of the mystical faiths, they talk about duality. Now, on the other hand, we have what we talk about seeing through the eyes of the spirit, through pure consciousness, through pure awareness. And so when it comes to the word faith, we either see faith through that egoic mind or through a spirit mind. And this is what I'm really trying to make reference to. And the majority, almost all discussion that I hear about faith is from that egoic point of view. So for example, when we talk about, you know, when we make reference to faith as as something that is a belief in God, uh, or, you know, faith is believing in a certain doctrine or certain set of moral values or believing in Jesus. We often assume that that is faith, but that is perceiving faith through the egoic mind. And I'll get into that a little later on. And the reason why is because it is viewing through an intellectual lens. And when we view things through an intellectual lens, when we view things through a mental concept, the ego will often use it to strengthen itself. 
we may feel that we have the best belief system and belong to the true church. Somehow or another, these tribal sentiments hijack faith and structure it as a false dichotomy, either you're in or out, either you're good or evil, either you're either you're part of our group or you're not part of our group. You're either us or them. And that is what I'm saying. That's the go way of seeing faith. And that's how most people perceive faith. Another way that people perceive faith is that faith is a prerequisite to get what I want. If I, for example, if I'm praying for certain things, if I decide to be healed, if I want more finances and some another, I ask God for it, and then I get my answer, then we feel a sense of the ego feels strengthened that, you know, it was because of my spiritual prowess, so to speak, that the answer was given to me. And, and so the ego then feels like God heard my prayers. God knew how much that, I needed it. Does that take away from prayer or does that take away from uh someone saying, I'm going to talk to God about the concerns and the things that I have in my life and prayer. There's nothing wrong with talking to God about your concerns or your, the situations you're going through or your struggles. All those things are good. But the tendency is that we use prayer to solidify, to enhance our sense of self to feel somewhat that we are more qualified than others. So if our prayers are answered, there is a reason for it. And the reason is because somehow or another I have the faith. And if, if the prayers are not answered, then we often blame something outside of ourselves. We may uh, blame God's sovereignty. We may uh, blame the devil's attack. We may blame the spiritual climate in the region or, or some other thing. We almost blame something. And even if we blame ourselves, we then are left to feel condemned that somehow or another we're not good enough. And that feeling of condemnation is always rooted in the egoic mind. So that's why I'm saying that most times when we talk about faith, it is rooted in an intellectual concept, is rooted in uh, thought patterns, which ultimately contains the I, me, and mine in it. And that is why it is not a true representation of faith. Where does the faith actually come from? I mean, I, I, I do understand that um, from a biblical background, faith is named over 336 times in the Bible and, and, and things along those lines. But how does faith pertain to basically life and like faith of, of, of Jesus. Yeah. And this is what I'm trying to establish because as we talked about, if, if we understand the egocentric, ethnocentric, world-centric, and then Christ-centric, we are beginning to get a clue to what really what we are referring to. Now, most of the time, and the most people perceive duality. In other words, it views God as an entity separated from us. We see God as another being that exists outside of us that lives up in some galactical place in heaven somewhere, and he hands out rewards 
to some and to others he re, others he reject and so we have this image of god and so when we think about faith then we're trying to get god to do something for us we're trying to qualify we're trying to be recognized by god we are trying to for our faith to be accounted for something so that we can get something from god but as i began to look at the faith of jesus and this is what i found so incredibly fascinating as i began to look at the faith of jesus i noticed a different pattern and then i read something in the book of hebrews that so completely changed uh how i view faith that so completely transformed it and I, and I, I can share that in a few minutes. Actually, the, most of the book is in regards to that because it completely separates faith from that egoic understanding to understanding faith as a mystery, as something that is spiritual, something that is beyond the limitations of the mind. And that's really what this whole chapter is about, that faith at the very core is being aware of your oneness with God. Faith is being spirit aware, conscious, moving beyond, moving deeper than thought, and simply coming to that place of pure awareness of divine, the divine union within each and every one of us. And that is the Jesus kind of faith that I actually go into in quite a depth here in this chapter. So you say the faith is basically beyond the limitation of the mind, meaning that you can't really have a intellectual concept of faith. Is that true? Well, you can talk about faith, you can discuss it with words, but it cannot be understood by the intellect for, for it's a perception beyond the limitations of the mind. So yeah, you can talk about it, you can describe it, you can, what we're doing right now, we're talking about it, but mm -hmm. ultimately faith is not something that you pick up by reading a set of scriptures and reading a, a book or any of that. It's something that you can only catch, you can only see it, and it, you only see it when you actually move beyond your thoughts. So most of the time we reduce faith into a mental alignment with a particular set of values, dogma, beliefs. But that's not really the true essence of faith. Now, it is a form of faith, even according to the Bible. But what I'm suggesting here in this chapter is, is that Jesus actually showed us a different type of faith where that faith is... It is, as I said, an awareness of a transcending reality manifesting as selfless love. We are seeing with a new set of eyes, we are conscious of our true essence and our union with spirit. And that ultimately is what leads to happiness in our life. It's what leads to better health. Uh, it, it leads to creativity, uh, emotional well-being. It even... And I, I have taken some time to study this. It increases our intelligence. And because we're aware of this divine union. And this is really, to me, is so exciting when people get this. And, and I, hopefully my words will be able to guide them to that point where they can um, themselves being able to see 
and perceive this union that they share with God, that their spirit is one with God at the very consciousness. When you remove all the thoughts that at that moment you are aware and that awareness is of God. Well, let's talk about faith of Jesus. In your book, you write, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews devotes considerable amount of ink to explain faith on how this faith of Jesus is the birth of the new kind of faith. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, for those who are familiar with biblical texts, and specifically the book of Hebrews, there are a number of different chapters, specifically starting in the end of chapter 10, and then going into 11, and then into 12, that talks about faith. Now, in the beginning, what we're seeing is here, there's an explanation what faith is, and then the author proceeds to explain how people throughout ages and generations from, from, from the Jewish history back had been people of faith. They had, because they considered themselves righteous. Now, the word righteous meant that they, were, they, they considered themselves righteous. In other words, that they were right with God based on not on their performance, but they were right with God. And somehow or another, that they, they could be in contact with God, and God saw them, and God honored them, and God gave to them. But then it kind of, in the end of that chapter 11, it then says, but they still didn't get faith completely. They had missed something about faith, that they had misunderstood faith, even though they had kind of walked in the right direction. And then we see that and then it goes into chapter 12, where it says that Jesus now, he authored and pioneered a new kind of faith. And in other words, he wrote a book about, you could say that he wrote the book about a new kind of faith, not the faith of what these Old Testament historical figures, but something that was uniquely different. Now, the problem with Christianity, and I don't say that, I say that as someone who spent my life within Christianity, is that we have taught a faith, not the Jesus kind of faith, but we are taught the faith that we see in many of these Old Testament uh, figures and personalities. And we taught that to be faith, but Jesus kind of comes around and he talks about the new kind of faith, a faith that hadn't existed before, a faith that was different from anything they had seen before. So what was this faith that was different than the faith previously? And as I began to study this, it really kind of just took me on this journey of understanding the incredible um, magnitude of this divine essence that is within all of us. Because what the Hebrew writer says, for the joy that was set before Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Now, when I first read that, I thought, oh yeah, I don't know what that means. But as I began to look into that, as I began to consider that, I saw this mysterious faith of Jesus in a, with a whole new set of eyes that is so transformative that if my Christian friends would get this, it would so revolutionize how they see life and how 
they experience reality and it will also improve their lives. I can guarantee you that it will improve their lives greatly. So this is what I'm really sharing in this chapter. Do you think that God placed Jesus in Galilee because of their extreme religious roots? And when I say religious, I mean the tradition of rules and traditions and the extremeness of that. The environment that Jesus was in led him, I'm sure, to a new understanding and to initiating and perfecting a new kind of faith. And I, I, if you don't mind, I'll take a few moments and just explain the kind of background that Jesus was raised in. Now, as many of you know, Jesus' birth was probably between 4 and 6 B.C. And Jesus lived in Egypt, according to the biblical accounts. And then he moved back to uh, Galilee together with his parents. And historians believe that, as you already pointed out, that Galilee was the most religious area for Jewish believers in the world, even more so than Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the capital, or the Jewish capital, and you know a lot of the activity, a lot of the spiritual activity took place in that city. But the passion and the religious commitment in Galilee surpassed the devotion and piety of other areas in Israel at the time. It was kind of the Jewish Bible belt that we kind of see even today. So it was very conservative and they were very much against any kind of new thoughts such as Hellenism. And so in this kind of a background, what happened was that there was this educational process, which was called Mishnah. So every young boy in Galilee, including Jesus, around the age of five, they would have begun to study in what they call Beth Sefer, which is elementary school, where both boys and girls were taught by a rabbi, which is translated teacher or master, to read and write scripture. So they were even uh, trained to, uh, or to, to basically memorize the entire book of Torah. Now, not all the kids were able to do that, but many of the kids, many of the most gifted students were so intimately aware of their scripture that they knew it off by heart. Of course, they didn't, you know, they didn't have books to read at the time. So it was done on scrolls and someone read it to them and then they would memorize it. So they went through this kind of a schooling for the first five years. So for the, from the ages of five to 10. And then at the end of Beth Sefer, the girls would start taking on the household duties. The boys would learn the family trade and most people will not go to school anymore, but the best male students, they would then move on to another, uh, what they call Beth Midrash, which is kind of a secondary school where they would begin to study the prophets and other spiritual texts and memorize all those scriptures as well. And by the age of 18, few of the most outstanding students would leave home for a lengthy period of time to study with a famous rabbi. And these students were called Talmidim. Another word for that, or the word for it, of course, that we know is disciple. But it wasn't like the, the understanding of disciple that we have today. These Talmidims, these were passionate followers of the rabbi. So they listened to the rabbi's teaching 
And that was part of it. But they also emulated his lifestyle to become exactly like this rabbi. So there were many different rabbis, and they all had different various interpretations of their scriptures. They all saw things differently. But these most gifted students would follow and walk with him and study with him and travel with him or whatever, spend time with this famous rabbi until they became him in a sense. Mm -hmm. In other mm -hmm. words, they lived out like he did. And this is the historical background that then Jesus came on the scene. So Jesus comes on the scene, as we know, and he was a rabbi. So he must have gone through this process. And so what happened by the age of 30, a student would be released and it would kind of be graduating from their studies after being following this rabbi. And now they will become rabbis themselves. They will be like ordained to be in a rabbi. And now they would seek out or students will seek out to become their Talmudim. And so what happened, the master or the rabbi, he would pick the students or they, they would come to him and apply to him, but he would pick the most gifted students. But Jesus, of course, he did something completely different. He picked out the people who were never gone through this educational process, the people who had stopped studying at the age of 10 and working in the family business. He, he turned to the fishermen, the tax collectors, and he turned to those who were now 18 years of age or so, and he turned to them to follow him, the ones who didn't complete their studies. And so it's kind of a fascinating. So I don't know if you, you jump in and does that take away or does that change the person are the people who now can hear the word or can follow the rabbi because it looks like it changed the dynamic i mean because if you have people who are already going to school learn the torah learned all of this followed the rabbi it just keeps the same cycle going on the same people um but Jesus went and found people that are not in that same realm. Yeah. And that, that was of course, a great sign of love mm -hmm. in Jesus turned to what society considered less, not a qualified, he turned to them, which I think is greatly symbolic of all of Jesus teachings and all that Jesus stood for. And of course, Jesus quickly stood out among the other rabbis back at the time. And one of the reasons why, because there were miracles. And when someone had miracles or they had, they had what they called things happen that seemed outstanding, then they were considered to have what they call shmika. And they had authority and they had shmika. And that gave them the opportunity to make new interpretations of their sacred scriptures. So they would then take the, and, and, and so even you look at Jesus, Jesus, I mean, if he would have been a Bible student, I heard someone say this, if he would have been a Bible student, he would have failed greatly because he took everything out of context and he rewrote basically how you see and read their, mm -hmm. their biblical text. And, but they were allowed to do that. And that's interesting because he had Shmika. And so each rabbi then had what they called their own set of teachings, and this was called the yoke of the rabbi. And there was called the yoke of the rabbi because think of this, the imagery here is that you have, uh, 
is an ox and that they would walk in unison, unison and the leadership of the lead ox. So the lead ox, and then you will be with, beside them. That's how you became a disciple. Remember Talmudim, that's how you became, began to emulate their life. So each of them had a general set of teachings, a general set of ideas that they based their teachings on. So what was Jesus' yoke? Well, Jesus' yoke was, of course, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now, but every, all the rabbis taught about that. So that was nothing really new. But the way Jesus taught about it was new because most of, of the rabbis taught about the kingdom of God, that the, the Messiah would come or the Christ would come. And when he would come, this Roman empire, the occupying force in Israel would he would deliver them from that force and he would establish Israel's political and religious independence. And this would usher in a time of global peace in the world. So, so they thought it was a war or some sort of big giant action that had to come and, you know, slain the land or something like that, or the people in charge. Exactly. That was their perception. There would mm -hmm. be like some, a major change and that you would have to kill them. You had to kill the opposing force. You had to drive them out, whatever you had to do. It was about winning. Of course, is how the ego perceives things. But Jesus spoke about the kingdom of heaven differently. He said, it's not something you observe with your five senses. It's not something that you see. It's not something you go over there to get, even though it's over there, but it's, it's not something there because it says the kingdom of God is within you. And this was such a, incredible thing to say, because when you said the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is within you, what you are suggesting then is that God is within you. Um, and that this, the fruit of that kingdom was not, as I said, military might, or it wasn't even some kind of a tribal allegiance to Judaism. It was not some external religious piety or, but it was an inward love that externally manifested as love for your enemies. It was peace from within that turned into peace on earth and inner joy that brought joy to the world. So this is the context of Jesus. But then he talks about also, um, if the kingdom of heaven is, is, is within you or kingdom of God is within you, it makes Jesus and God the Father as one, right? We see this, how Jesus identified with the foreigners who lived in the nation. He, come, he identified what society called the least among them. He identified with the sinners who were the outcasts of society. He uh, identified with women <clears throat> who were often marginalized by traditions. He identified with the secular elite who were rejected by the religious political establishment. And then, and this was the most shocking thing that Jesus did, and that caused such tremendous uproar among the religious people, that he talked about God being, you know, that he was one with the Father. He was one with God. In other words, what he was saying was that God was on an object separate from him, but not just from him, because he also talked about, I'm one with all these other people who were considered the sinners, the outcasts, the horrible people. He said, I'm one with them. So what he was suggesting was that this kingdom of God is in everybody, that God is in everyone. And this was 
so shocking to the religious community. They could not comprehend union with God because, as you understand, they identified with their personal and the collective ego. And the moment, you think about this logically, Mark, is the moment that you're now suggesting to somebody who is not very good, the outcast, someone who's completely different than you, that the kingdom of God is within them, that I'm in them, as Jesus said, I'm, I'm in the Father, you are in the Father. Once you begin to suggest that God is in each and every one of us and God will live and move and have our being, that this does not just apply to the tribe or to the people who are in, but it applies to everybody. Once you sub suggest that, what happens then to the religious teachers? Well, they're going to lose all the power, right? Yeah, and it also makes you feel like if, as we're talking, if I feel I'm not enough, if I'm um, insufficient in this or insufficient in that, how can God be in me? Or how can the kingdom of God be in me? I mean, and also in that day and age, gods were known like Zeus and Apollo, people with extreme power and strength and who are well unreachable and above everybody else. Did people think that if by those words being stated that God's power was being diminished when they say that it's in you? That even though you're, you're, you're accurate that they refer to these God and Zeus and these great gods, but this was, remember this was in among Jesus was actually ministering and speaking to Jewish people. And that would not have been their perception mm -hmm, of God. Mm -hmm. Their perception of God was that he was their God, that they were special people that, you know, they were following of the moral law. These were incredibly moral people in a sense, in one sense, there was hypocrisy there, but I mean, they're all the rules they had to follow all the things they had to do. And, of course, that was really just a way to strengthen the ego. It was they following all these different rules. It was the Ten Commandments, but then there were also these ceremonial laws. There was, there was hundreds and hundreds of rules and laws they followed. So the ones who were considered the most religious were the ones who followed all these different rules. So that's how they judged God. That, that was their view of God. So Jesus comes around and, and kind of just shatters that whole idea because they they had their sense of identity wrapped up in how well they followed the rules of the religion. And you can see that this is not just something that happened back then. I think this is in a way what we see in Christianity today. And in many circles, in many evangelical circles, I've seen this, I've been part of it, so I can speak with some authority on this. We, we feel like we're the in crowd. We paid our dues. We're living more lives. We go to church. We tithe. We pray. We do these different things. We have faith. And so you come along and suggest that, you know, we're no longer under the law. That created a big uproar in church when that was brought up, uh, you know, 20 years ago. So when you start talking about that God is in everyone, now he can be in, of course, in us more religious people and us who follow the faith. But when you begin to suggest that God is in everyone, that the kingdom of God is in all beings from every background, from every male or female or, and in fact, in they, 
mm -hmm. non-binary. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul said there's neither male nor female. When, when you begin to look at that and you think of that he is on people from different in different religions and different backgrounds, the different races, and in men and in women, Jesus kind of opened up the book of, of who the kingdom of God was in. It was in everybody. Once you begin to say that, if you, if, when you teach this today, like I'm doing right now, in most corners, it would be completely an outright heresy to suggest what I'm suggesting. But if you read a Bible, uh, then, then that, that's that's really what, what the Bible talks about. And here what I found really interesting with in the Jesus story, and I think we're seeing the same thing today, Marcus. <laughs> I found this incredibly interesting, how whenever religion is under attack, when they feel threatened by a more progressive agenda or new spiritual thought, when there is a voice that you know that um, advocate greater equality, greater tolerance, greater acceptance of everyone, religion immediately steps in and tries to squash that, to diminish their significance. And because the more you make it inclusive, the less the ego feels like, I have something that they don't have. You stated something that was so strong to me and it stood out so much in like religion will ultimately always side with what preserves its tradition, even if it means violating its core principles. I think we see that today, really big today. When you talk about politics, when you talk about things, when you talk about truth, when you talk about lies, there's a lot of people who follow things that will preserve the tradition of the principles are, are preserved the tradition of religion, even when if it means violating core principles. Absolutely. Think about this. You, you see this in the, in the Bibles. I'm gonna let, let me tell you that story, and then I'm going to get right into what you talked about, because this is so fascinating. You remember Jesus? Of course you remember Jesus. Now, what did they do with Jesus? Well, they crucified, crucified him, right? But what was the Jewish, what was the Jewish beliefs? What they believe the Ten Commandments. You shall not kill. You, thou, thou shall not kill, or you shall not kill, right? Mm -hmm. But when it came to Jesus, what did these religious leaders do? They caused the crowd, they stirred up the crowd to shout, crucify Jesus. What were they doing? They were telling the crowd to kill Jesus, not for the crowd to kill Jesus, but for Pontius Pilate to kill Jesus. They were so infuriated with Jesus because he proclaimed a message of inclusiveness. And that became such a threat that they did everything they knew how to somehow or another to squash that voice. And even killing was justified. Now you see this throughout the history of Christianity how for centuries and centuries, when anybody came along and spoke something differently, they were put to death because of it. And even to this day, when someone comes around and talks about this inclusive message that of love, even, you know, people say, Christians say, well, we, you know, God loves everybody. Mm -hmm. Except that in order for you to somehow another be a recipient of that love, you better not 
uh, and there are all these different rules that are forever changing. When I was young, you could not drink, you could not smoke, you couldn't do different things, but that cannot change. So we kind of allow that. But now we have all these other things. So if you're homosexual, you're not allowed to be that because then it's, it's considered sin. And so we have all these different rules. So you see even this politically, and, and this is going to, this is not going to go over well in some circles. You see this in the election of the previous president that such a large majority of evangelical Christians supported him. Why? Here is a man who did not love enemies, did not pray for those who spitefully used him, did not do good to those that, you know, that harm you. He didn't do any of that. He didn't exhibit any of forgiveness and all of that. But the reason why they stood with him was because he defended their traditions. He defended their religion, even though it wasn't really a defense of the religion. He defended what they perceived to be their values, and they did not understand the real values of Jesus, which is love and compassion and generosity and forgiveness, how that is a transformation that takes place on the inside that then transforms us. So they were more concerned with making sure that they would keep the status quo and that their sense of power and significance would not be diminished. So it goes back to the ego again. You see this here? It was mm -hmm. the ego again. So even, you know, even little hints, the racist remarks that we hear, the like, uh -huh. you know, it is all about raising up us, the special people, that we're a little more enhanced. It's all the ego. And if we can diminish others, and so he represented that, and that's why the religious leaders, evangelicals embraced someone that is counter to everything that Jesus stood for. Find that quite ironic. But I'm not saying that as, as a condemnation. I'm just saying that as someone who's been there and been part of that. So I'm speaking as someone who's maybe standing on the fringes of things and I'm seeing from the outside, seeing things from that, from the fringes of things. And I see, and I look back and I see how incredibly deceptive and hypocritical uh, the religious leaders of our day have become. So how does that lead into Jesus's resurrection? And I know resurrection was discussed in here. And how does faith pertain to that? Well, I, I think that several different things. Well, what we see here in Jesus, Jesus never became hateful. He never became vengeful towards his attackers. So we never can be vengeful and there's no need to respond to the haters on Facebook. There's no need to respond on Twitter. There's no need to get upset. And because he knew that establishing fault would only bring about further division and would pit groups of people against one another. But Jesus died not to give us another religion that would strengthen our ego. And this egoic pattern that so is ingrained in us this egoic pattern that lives on separation and identification that lives on this continuum of good and evil. But Jesus extended forgiveness to all and he broke down the wall. And so the death demonstrate the essence of love. It demonstrates that 
the wall of separation that existed in the minds of humanity because of the ego and the ego's need to stand out to be superior, to be better than, to be bigger than, has been completely torn apart. So that the resurrection then, what that speaks of, to go back to your question, the resurrection, this incredible concept that was not new, by the way, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. Uh, and the reason why they believed in the resurrection, this is quite fascinating, actually, because the Jewish people had been in Babylon in captivity for 430 years. And so they had this promise that they would see the promised land. That was, you know, they were going to see the promised land. So when they died in Babylon, you know, obviously most of them died in Babylon. The promise was that there would be a resurrection. And so when Jesus comes along and it wasn't resurrection of all the people who had died, but there was a resurrection of one Jew. So it was a slightly different story. But what was that? When they began to then examine later on what it was in reference to, they began to realize that this resurrection was a resurrection from this egocentric, ethnocentric, world-centric consciousness to the Christ consciousness, that there was a resurrection, the egoic patterns of me, mine, and I, the enhancement of self, had been nailed to the cross. And now when there was resurrection, there was a resurrection of a new way of seeing the world, a new creation, a new consciousness, a new way of perceiving, where we perceive that I am one with you. We are one with one another. I'm in the least in our society. I'm, you know, we are in one another. We begin to see ourselves in one another. We begin to see God in one another. We begin to see God in ourselves. And we begin to see that we all are in God. That then transforms how we interact with one another. Was that a resurrection of all man? Because now it's not just a resurrection it's from like a, a broken person opening up their mind, their eyes to seeing totally differently. It's like a, a rebirth in a way. It was like a rebirth of humanity in a sense. So that's the story of the first Adam and the second Adam. As for those who are familiar with biblical text, it was, it was moving from that first egoic Adam to a new Christ-centric way of seeing the world uh, that was emerging from within each and every one of them that the, what we have discussed even last week that evolution is this that we are evolving that God's plan from the very beginning was that formlessness God is formless consciousness would manifest in full maturity in form when I say form I'm talking about through physical reality from what we perceive as physical reality. That was God's intention from the beginning, that he would manifest through physical reality. And so we see this in Jesus, the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus then is the full revelation of what God looks like in form. So it unfolds. Uh, so you say the faith of Jesus unfolds who he is. And you go to a few different points and you say, first off, the faith of their rabbi revealed that suffering death on the cross was not the end, but the beginning. Can you explain a little bit? 
about that? Yeah. So when what we quoted earlier, the book of Hebrews, it says that he was author and the finisher of our new faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So what does that mean? So when I began to look at that, Jesus died on the cross, this horrifying death of crucifixion, so that the secret to life could be discovered. To die before you die is simply learning that there is no death. Um, that even though we may not suffer the same fate as Jesus, the crucifixion story was the death of the ego. And that's later explained when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. And the word for I there is ego. And so faith for them was the inner joy they felt when they experienced pain and suffering, you know, as a result of the ego, knowing that the suffering was necessary for the death of the ego, for the death of identification with I, me, and mine, this conceptual, this um, idea about who I am. And when we would awaken to our true essence, which is consciousness and which is spirit. So the resurrection, you can call it an awakening, enlightenment, so, um, salvation, transformation, was that awakening that takes place once we have come to a point of an end to the ego. All right. Then the faith of Jesus revealed that the shame that had been passed down from Adam was only an illusion. What that means is that shame of course, is this feeling that I'm not enough, had entrenched itself in their subconscious. And we've been talking about that through some of the previous episodes that were always searching for love, significance, and superiority to stand out. They were always trying to prove their worth. It was always a struggle to be good and avoid evil. It was about this eating the tree of eating from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil that had hidden the dimension within them of this divine presence that the kingdom of God was within them. So what we're talking about here, Jesus, he did not consider the shame. Remember in the garden of Eden, how they says that they were naked and not ashamed. Mm -hmm. And the moment they ate of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, they actually covered themselves up with fig leaves mm -hmm. because they now were ashamed. So in this, the faith of Jesus was looking unto Jesus, often the finish of a faithful for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising its shame. And the word here, despising, means thought nothing of shame, thought nothing of I'm not enough. In other words, he did not see that I'm not enough. He, in so many ways, was completely exposed. He was naked on that cross, but he had moved beyond that stage, and that's what we learn from Jesus, then when we are so vulnerable in our vulnerability and our failures and our flaws and everything else, when it's open for the world to see, and there is no shame, there's no feeling of insecurity, there's no feeling of, I am not enough, there's no feeling of somehow or another, something missing in my life. That is a moment of, of faith. It also says the faith of Jesus revealed to him that He's the son of God. Can you elaborate on that? The son of God is an interesting concept that most people have not understood. Now, back in the day, it was very common for people to be called the son of God. The Caesars were called the sons of God. And they somehow or another represented their gods. So this was not an uncommon terminology at all. And 
and you pointed this out earlier, the son of God was someone a human, someone who dwelt in a human body and form, but still exhibited the God qualities that exhibited all the qualities they associated with God. So since God could not be seen in, you know, in most traditions, God was not something that they had seen. Then they said, well, a son of God is someone that actually has the same qualities. We see them as a human, but at the same time, they are son of God because they manifest the same qualities that the God that we believe in. So they were called the sons, son of God because they had power, they had strength, they had a lot of different things. And uh, they were wealthy, they were won wars, they had fame. And so emperors such as Julius Caesar and Augustus were called the sons of God. So in the case of Jesus, he was the son of God. But he didn't have those powerful traits. But what he had was he had this incredible love, forgiveness, compassion, and peace, even to the point of death, where somehow or another that death demonstrated and showed the world love more than anything else. And the resurrection showed then the power of love, power of grace. And so that's why he then became known as the son of God, because he manifested deity in fullness through the mind and through the body. The logos, that which could not be seen, became incarnate. It became the son of God. He, the, this, the, the true essence of the mysterious and uh, source of life looked exactly like Jesus. He was the son of God who defined with what God is in a human body, what God looks like in the human body. That's why he was called the son of God. So Jesus had that faith and he says, now you are son of God. You're a son of God. And, and we're speaking of gender neutral here, but you are a son of God when you wake up when there's a death of the eagle, when, the, when you become aware of this divine presence within you, then you realize that you are a mature son of God. So in today's day and age, is the faith of Jesus relevant to us today? Is it something that is necessary or in everyone today? Depends. Depends how you talk about Jesus. It depends how you actually share the story. And I would suggest that if we insist on reading the Jesus story through that biblical lens that says, okay, everything what the Bible says is exactly how it happened. We insist on the six-day creation story. We insist on uh, the ark story, you know, parting of the Red Sea, all those stories that are in the Bible. We, we insist on that. I think that somehow or another, most people who are educated will dismiss religion. The further along we move in history, especially if Christianity becomes known for being against progress in the world. I think at some point, this Jesus gone and pointing at people, either you believe and follow Jesus or you're going to hell. That story doesn't sit well with most people. So in that sense, I don't think it will survive. But but if Jesus instead is a face to behold, arms to embrace, and feet to follow in finding the lo divine love, finding this divine presence within each and every one of us, 
then, then I think it's highly, highly something that the world will be looking for and continues to look for. I know so many people, they say, you know, I, I don't like the Jesus of church, but I do like the Jesus that I learned about who were so kind and loving and giving and generous and, and forgiving. And I think that's the kind of Jesus the world and everyone needs to see. And that's not a religious Jesus. It's not a Jesus that says, oh, follow me, believe in me, believe in my name and some kind of a concept in the head and some kind of a mental idea. It doesn't make sense for them. But if Jesus is something that transforms your life, you become a follower of Jesus that then transforms your life that to the point where you're now free from the anxiety, the worry, the, the pain and the suffering. And you're just feeling so alive, feeling so present, and you're feeling a sense of love toward your neighbors, toward people who are different than you, people coming from different ethnic backgrounds, different religions, different races, uh, different genders. When you begin to just have a, a heart filled with love, then I think the message of Jesus actually is relevant. You, you say when, if the the message is still believe me or, or I'm the only way I'm the, I'm the one who uh, if you don't believe me, you're going to hell. Or if you don't follow these rules, you're going to hell. That sounds very ego driven person. That sounds like a person who's like, I am, I am the person who is, you know, the top, I, the, the ego, it's really like how you described it in the Bible. Like it needs to, you need to satisfy my ego in order for me to be able to, uh, to bless you. I mean, that's how it, it sounds. Absolutely. You're so right, Marcus. It's exactly, it's just an invention of the egoic mind. I need to feel better about myself. I need to feel enhanced. I need to feel that I'm special, that I'm unique, that I have some kind of knowledge that other people don't have, that I belong to the right religion, that I belong to this, and therefore I'm going to heaven. It's all like the, the ego feels satisfied that I am doing all these different things. It's a gratification of the ego, but it's not life. And this is where it's missed it. That's why religion has missed it. And, and, and that's why we need a new story, not a new story, but we need to go back to the original story that Jesus tried to communicate because that's the only way I think Christianity will have any chance of surviving. Well, I personally think you really summed this, this chapter up um, when faith reveals who you are um, quite well. And it, it really changes your mindset on how you see things. It really opens your eyes to see how, faith and God's faith is, it, it, it is different than what you've been taught over the years in, in a religious background. Exactly. So the Jesus faith is simply moving beyond the intellect and awakening within to the divine presence, to your true self, becoming completely present, becoming completely aware. And in that awareness, allowing your mind, and it's not even allowing, but just spending time in that pure awareness, your mind, your thoughts, 
the, your attitudes, the way you see the world being transformed to the point where you now become a reflection through your form of God. God that is in all things, the formless consciousness that is in all things, now transforming your form so that you and I can be living evidence of God in the world that is so uh, much about peace, goodwill, happiness, and joy, and equality, and acceptance for all people. You say, when religious baggage that has been piled on the rabbi from Galilee is incinerated, then Jesus can be more relevant than ever. Pure, unselfish, and unconditional love will be more than abstract ideas and vague concepts. Love will be remarkably human. That is, to me, is really, really beautiful. That's, that's really what it's about. If we get this, we, we don't have to kind of tell people, you got to believe what I believe. You got to see the world that I got to do. You got to quote this. You got to say this. It's, it's all ego. It's all ego driven. But just life is just being aware of God within me and with all things, within all things, and thus extending love. Well, thank you very much, David. I encourage everybody out there to get this book, Awakening to I Am Love. Thanks for listening to today's podcast of Path of Love with David Youngren. This podcast is produced by the Path of Love Center, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, and sharing it with a friend. Together, we can grow an inclusive community around the transformational work of love. To learn more about Path of Love and get daily wisdom seeds sent to your email inbox, visit pathoflovecenter.com. You can also download David Youngren's guided audio meditation, Healing Stillness, for free at our website. From all of us at Path of Love, may love, joy, and peace be with you always.